0: Doing that would utterly defile the land. If a man divorces his wife and she goes off and marries somebody else, she now belongs to somebody else and he can't just take her back. Not only has he violated his covenant with her by tossing her to the side, but he's going to violate another covenant with somebody else by trying to take her back. And God says this would defile the land. This would ruin the land. And in that, he means that in a metaphysical, spiritual, cultural, sociopolitical kind of a way. Not in a will literally become dirty. So what makes you think that you can return to me, says Yahweh? Look up at all the hilltops and consider this. You've had sex with other gods on every one of them. You waited with those gods like a thief lying in wait of the desert. And you defiled the land by your wicked prostitution to the other gods. Now this is important to understand. You would say, oh, this is just a metaphor. But remember when they were sleeping with the temple prostitutes, they believed the temple prostitutes were the embodiment of the gods. They believed that they really were truly having sex with the gods or the spirit of the gods. And so God is condemning them for that. And he says, That is why the rains have been withheld and the spring rains have not come. Yet in spite of this, you are obstinate as a prostitute. You refuse to be ashamed of what you have done. Even now you say to me, You are my father." You have been my faithful companion ever since I was young. You will not always be angry with me, will you? You will not be mad at me forever, will you? That is why you say, but you continually do all the evil that you can. So they keep saying, oh, you won't always be angry with us, God. You're not always going to have wrath again. Eventually that will pass and you'll move on to other things and forget what we've been doing. And God is saying, no, that's not true. Because judgment is going to come upon you as a result of that. Verse 6. Now we move into a more paragraph um, narrative briefly before a new poetic structure is introduced. When Josiah was king of Judah, and Yahweh said to me, Jeremiah, you have no doubt seen what wayward Israel has done. You have seen how she went up to every high place and under every green tree to give herself like a prostitute to the other gods. Yet even after she had done all that, I thought that she might come back to me. But she did not. Her sister unfaithful Judah saw what she did. She also saw that I gave wayward Israel her divorce papers and sent her away because of her adulterous worship of other gods. Even after her unfaithful sister Judah had seen this, she still was not afraid. And she too went and gave herself like a prostitute to other gods because she took her prostitution so lightly. She defiled the land through her adulterous worship of gods made of wood and stone. In spite of all this, Israel's sister's unfaithful Judah has not turned back to me with any sincerity. She has only pretended to do so, says Yahweh. Then Yahweh said to me, under the circumstances, wayward Israel could even be considered less guilty than unfaithful Judah. Now what God is making clear here is, I've already given my divorce papers to Israel and sent her away, and you're now in danger of being divorced as well. Now remember, if you're divorced and then they go off and pick another god, they can't come back. Remember, the debt is not a hardcore carved in stone kind of thing that God is saying that you can't repent. And we know that God is always willing to take us back no matter what we've done. That's not the point. He's not talking about the individual. He's talking about Israel and Judah as a corporate nation. And what he's saying is that Judah and Israel, as you know it, cannot come back to me in the way that you were. After you've been divorced from me, you go into exile and you've worshipped your other gods. This is why when we get to Ezekiel, we've already seen hints of this in the prophets, but when we get to Ezekiel and we get to the post-exilic prophets, the one that came after Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah, they're going to make it very clear that God is going to make Israel into something new and different, that he will return them back to the land, But remember, in some ways, the really blatantly evil people have been killed. They will not survive the exile. The only people who survive are the remnant. And in that sense, the remnant are not as idolatrous as the ones who were killed. And then when the remnant go off into exile, they will die in exile and a new generation will come up. And when that new generation comes up, they will come back to Israel and they will become a new Israel, a different Israel. Where God is going to change things drastically for who they are so in some sense he means this corporately when I divorce you Israel there's no you coming back to me when you go and choose to marry other gods but at the same time the Israel he's bringing back is going to be a different kind of an Israel the children of this Israel so to speak and we saw that in Hosea but he also means this metaphorically that don't take that so far That God is saying that no individual who strayed so far away from God can never come back to God ever again. That's not what he's saying. Moses' language is always corporate. And this is the danger that Christians today get in trouble with. Is they go back to the First Testament and they read these prophets. And they often often interpret them as individual. Like We have made, the gospel presentation has become so individualistic that you are saved when you accept Christ and you will go to heaven. And that's true, but we've made it so individualistically of my choice to accept Christ so that I can be saved and go to heaven, that when we go back to the First Testament and read things like this, we can't help interpret them as an individual thing, when God is mostly speaking corporately. And when we get to the Gospels, you'll see that even most of the Gospel message that we know today and have made about I, I, I... Is still more corporate in God's eyes than what we often think of it as being. So remember, there's a corporate and individual level here. But the other thing that shows you how far their sin has gone is that God says that they no longer feel shame. And you know that you have dove deep into sin when you no longer feel guilt or shame anymore, ever. And you have no desire to repent. And the idea of somebody saying that you're doing wrong and you should repent is completely foreign to you. And you can't even comprehend what they're saying. And you don't even know what shame feels like anymore. You have really, really fallen. And you need to remember that. When we think of people doing bad things in America, most of the people that we know still know somewhere deep in inside that what they're doing is wrong. And they still feel guilt and shame. And they want to change even though they might feel trapped. Even if you go to um, a a drug and alcohol addictions and that kind of sex addicts, a lot of them are like, I don't want to be this way. I don't like being this way. I can't stop myself. But when you come to an Israel and a Judah who are like, "Eh, don't feel anything, doesn't matter to me, that's that's sin. The image of God is breaking. It's disappearing in them. And I mean that metaphorically speaking. They've really fallen. So in verse 12, God says this, Go and shout this message to my people and the countries in the north. Tell them, come back to me. Wayward Israel, says Yahweh. I will not continue to look on you with displeasure, for I am unmerciful, says Yahweh. I will not be angry with you forever. However, you must confess that you have done wrong and that you have rebelled against Yahweh your God. You must confess that you have given yourself to foreign gods under every green tree and have not obeyed my commands, says Yahweh. Now, what God is saying is you can come back to me, but first you have to confess that you're wrong. Right now, you feel no shame. Right now, you're justifying your sin and you are in denial. And I can't have a relationship with somebody who constantly wrongs me and cheats me and says, what's the big deal? No one can have a relationship with somebody like that. Come back to me my wayward son says Yahweh for I'm your true master if you do I will take you I will take one of you from each town and two of you from each family group and I will bring you back to Zion and I will give you leaders who will be faithful to me. And you will? Lead, they will lead you with knowledge and insight. And in those days your population will greatly increase the land. At that time, says Yahweh, people will no longer talk about having the ark that contains Yahweh's covenant with us. They will not call it to mind, remember it, or miss it. No, that will not be done anymore. At that time the city of Jerusalem will be called Yahweh's throne. And all nations will gather there in Jerusalem to honor Yahweh's name. And they will no longer follow the stubborn inclinations of their own evil hearts. At that time, the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel will be reunited. Together they will come back from the land and the north to the land that I gave your, gave your ancestors as a permanent possession. Now this is a powerful. A lot of people often ask me, like, where's the Ark of the Covenant now, Mr. Bakker?" And I'm like, I don't know. And my answer often to them is, who cares? And that's the point that God is making here. Now, yes, as a Bible scholar and a historian, I would think it's so cool to be able to see the Ark of the Covenant in a historical way. That would be awesome. The same time, though, it's still just a gold box. That's all it is. It was a metaphor of God's presence. And ultimately, in I really truly believe that if we discover the Ark of the Covenant, it would probably be a, for, a source of idolatry for us as Christians and Catholics and Jews alike. And I don't mean every single one, but as a large whole. It would be, it would be idolatrous. Maybe not bow down and worship to it, but lift it up pretty high. But this is the point that God is making. There will come a day where no one will know where the ark is and no one will ask where the ark is because they will have something way better. I myself will be enthroned with them and they will not be sinning anymore and we will be together in the land. And we've already talked about this with the prophets that we've already gone through. But this is the promise that god is making that one day he will bring them back to the land and he will actually physically dwell with them we know this now today as we go through the gospels the point the gospel is making is christ is the ark of the covenant and because he dwells in us we become the ark of the covenant not in that we are god but that god dwells in us through the holy spirit we have something way better than a gold box that sits there with fire on top of it we have the holy spirit himself indwelling us and the, and the Father is indwelling us and the Son is indwelling us. And this is the point that the author of Hebrews is making is why in the world would you go back to external things like an external tent, an external ark, and external things that are just things when you have the Son himself who is with us and in us. And this is what he's hinting at. Now, they can't begin to even comprehend the idea of Jesus Christ yet. They have this idea of a Messiah, but not in the way that we know Jesus as the God-man. But what God is promising is that there's a day something better is going to come. And this is the point that God is making. This is how he's able to remarry Israel, even though they've been divorced and they've been going off to somebody else, is because when this Holy Spirit comes into us, we're going to be a different Israel. A drastically different Israel. And remember, the true Israel is the one by faith, not ethnicity. Now remember, God still has a special place for the ethnic Jew in his heart. And one day the ethnic Jews will mass revival back to him. But ethnic Israel is not true Israel. Israel by faith is true Israel. And one day he wants those people who are ethnic Jews to come back to him in faith to become true Israel again. And so this is how we're able to come back to Christ and marriage as a different person, because we're going to have the Holy Spirit that's transforming us. Verse 19, I thought to myself, oh, what a joy it would be for me to treat you like a son. Now, this is God back in the wilderness at Mount Sinai thinking this. What a joy it would be for me to give you a pleasant land. The most beautiful piece of property there is in all the world. I thought you would call me father and would never cease being loyal to me. But you have been unfaithful to me, a nation of Israel, like an unfaithful wife who has left her husband, says Yahweh. A noise is heard on the hilltops. It is the sound of people of Israel crying and pleading to their gods. Indeed, they have followed sinful ways, and they have forgotten to be true to Yahweh their God. Come back to me, you wayward people. I want to cure your waywardness, say waywardness. Say, here we are. We come to you because you are Yahweh our God. We know our noisy worship of false gods on the hill and mountains did not help us. We know that Yahweh our God is the only one who can deliver Israel. From the earliest times of worship, that shameful God Baal has taken away all that our ancestors worked for. It has taken away our flock and our herds and even our sons and daughters. Let us acknowledge our shame. Let us bear the disgrace that we deserve. For we have sinned against Yahweh our God, both we and our ancestors, from the earliest times of the very day. We have not obeyed Yahweh our God. Now this is powerful. Because what God is saying here is, I thought that it would be really cool to adopt you and make you my chosen people. And we would have this really great relationship. And instead you went and rebelled and worshipped other gods with me. And this isn't fun for me anymore. And this is kind of like, you probably have all been here at certain times, but you're like, I, you're looking at your kids. I thought that this was going to be a really great vacation. I thought we would have a really awesome meal together as a family. I thought we could really, but you went and just screamed at each other and hit each other and mess it up. And I'm not having fun anymore and nobody's having fun anymore. And this is what we're like. And we can do this too. Okay, you may have even done this with friends or with your your spouse. Like I thought we could have a really great night together in the movies, but then you decide to bring this up and pick at that, and we got in a fight and da 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 da, and and you're like, what happened to these good intentions? Because this is what we do. This is what we do over and over and over again. But here's what's powerful. God says we've already talked about this, but He said in verse 22, "I want to cure you." I want you to. I want to cure you. Now, here's the thing that you must understand: you and I are no different than Israel and Judah. The tr- the remember the one who is forgiven of much loves much. The one who sits there and thinks I'm not like them, are not the one who really truly grasps the forgiveness of God and how much He's really done for them, and they don't really fall on their knees. And true worship of who Christ is and what he's done for them and truly love him in the way that he is. It does not mean that the one who sins more and more horribly is forgiven greater and loves more. It means the one who gets that they're no different than the hell's angel, nymphomaniac, biker, drug smoking pot, killing people, serial killer. In their heart, they're the same thing. And when you realize that you do the same thing that they do, maybe not with physical idols, maybe you're not out there as a corporate CEO person cheating the poor and all that kind of stuff. But in our own ways, we do the same thing. And my hope is we read through the prophets, you can see yourself in the mirror here because that's what the scripture is supposed to be is partly a mirror to reflect your own sinful nature that we tend to deny or rationalize away or distract ourselves with other things, entertainment, medication, friends, work, whatever. And if you really sit down and reflect and meditate on this and you remove the distractions, you'll realize that we're no different. And this is what God is trying to expose. But at the same time, we are different. Because through Christ and the Holy Spirit, he is curing us. He is curing us of that waywardness. And we call this sanctification. And so in some ways we can say, yes, but I am not like that. I haven't gone that far. Or maybe I was at a time in my life, but I no longer am. And I've said this before, but the author of Amazing Grace said, I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not what I used to be. And we need to hold that intention. And so there's this, there's, there's this double-edged sword here that we can't think, oh, yeah, but I accepted Jesus Christ, and so none of this really applies to me, and I don't really relate to this. Wrong. But there's another sense that, yes, you are different, though, because of the blood of Christ. And this is the point that First John is making, is that those who are in Christ don't sin. And you're like, but I do. And he says, but thank God that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. And he's the one that makes the difference in everything. I am not what I ought to be, meaning I'm just like Israel. But I'm not what I used to be, meaning that Christ is in me, curing me and sanctifying me and making me a new creature in Christ. And we need to hold that tension in hand. And we need to come to the scriptures in that way. And so in some ways, we are the beauty of hindsight. And we can relate to this. But we now know what it's like to be the new Israel, to be in the process of being cured, in the process of our hearts being changed. And this is what God is promising us. And this is what we're experiencing. And so that's what you need to see here. And and the beauty of this, too, is not only can we see ourselves in this in a way that we don't often see in the epistles, because the epistles just list sense. It's easy to say, I don't do that. But when you see things happening in narrative, it's a lot easier to relate to that and see it. But at the same time, it's also beautiful to see that Jesus Christ was not an afterthought for God. That This is something that he laid down before the foundations of the earth and was developing over a long period of time in the First Testament. And he's making it blatantly obvious here that something different is coming one day. And you and I get to experience that. You and I get to experience that. And so this is what God is doing here in the book of Jeremiah in this section. But remember, the key is repentance. The key is repentance. Chapter 4, verse 1. If you, Israel, want to come back, says Yahweh, if you want to come back to me, you must get those disgusting idols out of my sight. And you must no longer go astray. You must be truthful honest upright when you take an oath saying as surely as yahweh lives if you do the nations will pray to me as blessed by blessed by him as you are and will make him the object of your boasting so you need to repent and repentance means a change of lifestyle now that doesn't mean you have to be perfect and it doesn't mean that you do it in your own effort but repentance means a change of lifestyle and as a result of that you will be a light to the nations And they will see something different and they too will repent and come to me. That's what I wanted all along. This is what God is saying. I wanted a relationship with you. I wanted a really cool experience with you at Mount Sinai and from that point on. And then I wanted you to do what was right to other people so that you would not bring destruction to their lives and your own lives. So that the nations would see the beauty of that relationship and that fruitfulness and look at it and say, I want to be a part of that and be changed. That was the whole Point. It was a, to be corporately us and them as they came to us. Yes, Yahweh has this to say to you people of Judah and Jerusalem. Like a farmer breaking up hard, unplowed ground, you must break your rebellious will and make a new beginning, just as a farmer must clear away thorns, lest the seed is wasted. You must get rid of the sin that is ruining your lives. Just as ritual circumcision cuts away the foreskin, an external symbol of dedicated covenant commitment, you must circumcise your hearts to Yahweh and get rid of everything that hinders your commitment to me. People of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, if you do not, my anger will blaze up like a flaming fire against you that no one will be able to extinguish that will happen because of the evil you have done. Remember, this circumcision of the heart. This is a very powerful metaphor that is used all throughout the Bible. And I know it can be somewhat uncomfortable as you think about the process of circumcision, but I want to mention here because Jeremiah is one of the very few prophets that mentions this circumcision of the heart. And we kind of already talked about this back in Genesis and then again in Deuteronomy. But remember, to be a part of the Abrahamic covenant, God required circumcision. To mark you as a member of the covenant. Now, that was the sign of the covenant. And in fact, it was such a big deal that that became a controversial thing in Israel during the Gospels and the book of Acts. When the new Christians who were Jews were saying, yeah, if you Gentiles want to be Christians, you have to be circumcised. And they created a huge controversy in the book of Acts because it was part of their identity And it should be part of their identity because God made a really big point and said, if you don't get circumcised, I will cut you out of the covenant and you will die in judgment. So that's a pretty big deal. You don't take that lightly. But the circumcision meant this. Now, why would God have that as the sign? It seems awkward. If you remember, there's multiple reasons. But the main one I'm going to focus on, because that's what's being picked up here in Jeremiah 4, is that from the male and female genitalia, this is the only organ in the Bible that produce, or sorry, the body, not the Bible, the only organ in the body that produces both life and death. Now, I know there's some maybe internal organs that can produce like some bad toxins and produce some good things and that kind of stuff. But remember, in the ancient world, they did not have x-rays and they didn't cut up people for fun um, and look inside and all that kind of stuff. But externally speaking, naturally, and yes, I know you can puke out things and all that kind of stuff. But normally, the way that things normally function in a healthy way, the male and female genitalia produce both toxic waste and the seed of life. And so it's the organ that produced death and life. And he uses this imagery in Isaiah, too, when he talks about your righteous acts are like filthy cloth. He's talking about the menstrual period. Now what he's saying is this, you will always produce death through your own works. That's all you can do unless you're marked by God. When you become marked by God, then you can produce life. The only reason a woman is pregnant is because the seed is in her now. That's the point that Isaiah is making. Without a seed in her, she produces death, dead blood. And so what God is saying is that you, this sign will be a reminder to you that you must be marked by God if you want to produce life. And remember the sign of being part of the covenant was a great multitude, that I would make Abraham into a great number of people and you would have children and they would have children and they would have children. And every time Israel produces more children and multiplies and multiplies and multiplies getting bigger and bigger and bigger, it'd be a sign that God was doing amazing things with them, giving them life because they were marked by God in the Abrahamic covenant. But when they disobeyed God and produced death through their idolatry and social injustice, then he brought famine, and their numbers shrunk, 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 and oppression, and they shrunk, and then exile, and they shrunk. And so the abundance of the nation through children, the circumcision, was a sign that they were producing life. But when they weren't pursuing life, and they were going after sexual immorality and idolatry, which you compared to affairs, they would shrink. And so what God is saying is, you must be marked by me if you're going to produce life. That's the only way. So then Moses comes along at Mount Sinai, and he says, you are an evil, wicked generation. And I know he's pointing the finger at them. You could totally sense it in his voice. He says, you are evil, wicked in generation, and you will never change. You have no hope your hearts are hard. They're dead. Your only hope is that God must circumcise your hearts. And what he's saying is the heart metaphorically is another organ that produces life and death. And this is the point that Jesus is saying that out of the heart comes the true intentions or the man, what comes from the mouth comes out of the heart of the man and the heart can produce both life and death. And even James mentions this with the tongue that's connected to the heart. Your heart is evil and wicked And it can produce death and destroy people through your words, through your thoughts, your intentions, your actions. But if you're marked by God, you can produce life. And this is the point that God is making here in Jeremiah is a day is coming when you will no longer have an external symbol of circumcision, but you have an internal circumcision of the heart. And we know this through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that comes in and circumcises our heart. So their heart will no longer produce toxic waste, death, selfishness, and destruction and lies, but it will produce life, hope, joy, peace, encouragement, words of affirmation, that kind of stuff. And this is what God is saying. A day will come when we will be circumcised. And this is why the, the church of Acts could finally settle on the idea that you no longer had to be physically circumcised In order to be a Christian, or a Messianic Jew, or a part of the new Israel, you only had to be circumcised by the heart. And that was proven by the fact that Gentiles, like Cornelius, were speaking in tongues after the Holy Spirit came into them, and that Holy Spirit speaking in tongues was proving that something happened inside of them. You see, when you get physically circumcised, you can prove that you've been physically circumcised. When the Holy Spirit's come coming to you, it's a lot harder to physically prove that unless you're speaking in tongues. And so in that moment, it was proof that Jews and Gentiles could become Christians through spiritual heart circumcision. And so circumcision is still absolutely essential for your identity to be a Christian. And no one can be a part of the people of God without circumcision, except now it's not a physical symbol that is external. Now it's an internal indwelling of the Holy Spirit that circumcises your heart and changes it. And that's where God did not change the conditions for what made you a Christian or a person of Israel. He just changed what was being circumcised and where it was happening. And this is what Jeremiah is promising. One day that will come. And you and I, once again, in hindsight, know that day has come and that day is happening consistently consistently. As the dead hard-heartedness of our hearts is being cut away through sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And so that one day when Christ comes back, we can present ourselves perfected in Him. Not in our own works. Because that only produces death. And this is the point that God is making here when He promises this. And if you want to go back and look that up, circumcision was first detailed out in Genesis 17. And Moses made that reference in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, and Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. That's where it's specifically mentioned. So this gives you an idea of Jeremiah's messages. He is repeating a lot of the same themes that we've heard, but he's also adding new things, some things he's developing better. He's picked up on circumcision that hasn't been talked about a long time. He's developing that. He's talking about God wanting something new and different with them. So he adds some new things in that we haven't seen here.